Chunky Glasses Production. When I was a little kid, I was always missing the bus. And by little kid, I mean first grade right through high school. It used to really piss my mom off. But for whatever reason, I just couldn't get it together. I was probably finishing the last chapter in Stephen King's It, or trying to nail the solo in Stairway to Heaven, or maybe just spacing out in my Cheerios. All I know is I just never managed to make it out the door on time. And here I am now, a grown-ass person with two kids, who thankfully don't have to worry about the bus because their school is literally across the street. Not long ago, I realized that I'd missed another kind of bus, and I didn't even know it. See, I was never a Grateful Dead fan. Deadheads like to memorialize when they got on the bus. It's a reference to the song The Other One that commemorates Ken Kesey of the Merry Pranksters and the LSD raves known as Acid Tests from the 1960s. And that same tune also name drops Neil Cassidy, a high-powered mutant from the original Beat era who served as a kind of far-out Yoda to certain members of the band. We'll be exploring all that stuff in later episodes of Dead to Me. Anyway, you'll often hear people talk about this or that show that they went to or the time that they took acid and heard Dark Star. And that moment is when they got on the bus. Well, for whatever reason, I missed this particular bus too, and it wasn't for want of acid. But the fact is, for the majority of my time on this planet, I was antagonistic toward the Grateful Dead, or at the very least, ambivalent. Or maybe I was on the bus the whole time and didn't know it. My mom, who was not happy about having to drive me to school every day, was actually something of a deadhead. I mean, she didn't like drop out of life to go on tour or anything, but a year before she gave birth to me, she saw The Grateful Dead at Watkins Glen in 1973. And this is a show that made it into the Guinness Book of World's Records for the largest concert attendance in North America. So it's entirely possible that there was this weird seed inside me that took another 40 years to blossom. So what happened? How does a guy as dead averse as me become inspired to do an entire podcast with his dead loving friends about a band that he for so long purported to despise? I'd like to say that there was some lightning bolt that struck my skull and stole my face, but in reality, my appreciation was more gradual. When I was first becoming immersed in the dead, I was writing a book about William S. Burroughs' influence on four generations of musicians, including Garcia. It's called William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, and it comes out next June on University of Texas Press. So my research involved a really deep dive into the original beat movement, and I came to see Robert Hunter's words and Jerry Garcia's compositions as an extension of that scene, but also more than that. It's an encapsulation of America itself, warts and all. The innovation, the ecstasy, the anguish, the skull and the rose. Since becoming a deadhead, I've grown curious about how other people got on the bus. Later in this episode, we'll be talking to artist, designer, and rock club goddess Susan Norton about how she became a head and why, like me, it took so damn long. But before that, we're going to hang out with my co-host, Eduardo Nunes, who has some terrific insights drawn from his own life experiences. Eduardo, let's do this. So, Ed, how did we get here? Because I don't know about you, but I was not a deadhead by any stretch of the imagination. And I just want to know, like, how and when did you get on the bus? Yeah, there's never a short answer to that question, I think, for most people. Like, it's never as simple as just, you know, oh, someone put it on and I really dug it, right? Because... uh 
because the dead are sort of preceded by their cultural reputation, right? So I had moved to the States with my mom and, and stepdad and siblings, um, and I, I was here from 10th grade on. And I had never really been exposed to the dead. I mean, I'd, I'd heard about them. I had a, a friend who was, uh, uh, who hopefully we'll hear from a little bit later, Liz uh, Scarborough, who was like really into like punk and goth. And she dated this guy, Joe, I think was his name, who was in a Grateful Dead cover band. And I had no idea what that meant, oh. right? Like I knew what those words were, but I didn't have any cultural context for, for who the dead were. So I made it through high school without ever really being exposed to any any of their music other right. than, you know, maybe like a stray show here or there that, that someone might have put on. And it wasn't until the fall of 95, like the year that, that Garcia died, that um, I ended up randomly paired up with, uh, with my college roommate and one of my best friends, Evan Simpson, who was a raging deadhead from uh, Stony Brook, uh, Long Island. A guy who is really dear to me, he was a mentor to me, uh, is this fellow named Sandy Perlman, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago. But he was the first rock critic. He was a Blue Oyster Cult's manager, produced a shit ton of bands, and was just a super brilliant, far-out guy. Anyway, he went to Stony Brook, and he actually is the guy that brought the dead up in the uh, Stony Brook and New York community in like the mid to late 60s probably 67 or something when they first went east so clearly whatever is in the water at stony brook has been in the water for some time that's hilarious um so yeah so this guy evan shows up in uh at our college in in worcester ohio with just this like wooden case filled with these meticulously labeled cassettes and they had those um you remember like like the j cards right that were totally Yeah, and 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 uh, some of them had like these these like diagrams of the wall of sound. They all had like asterisks and this crazy shorthand for when it was the first time a song was played or the first time in however many shows. And I can pinpoint the moment where I was like, "Oh, this is something cool that I that I want to get into." And it's it's when this guy um, Evan and this uh, other kid from Baltimore they were talking about shows and they were sort of going back and forth and trading kind of you know stories and, and memories of favorite shows to listen to. And I had to do this sort of like, "All right, stop. You're all full of shit. Like, there's no way." the band sounded that different or you can tell the difference between like a show from 79 and one from 82. Yeah. It seems impossible at first, right? It's all just like plinky plinky. Yeah. Especially when you're hearing the same songs over and over again. And I, and I was coming from a musical context where like bands didn't approach the live experience the way the dead did. Right. So yeah. You mean they didn't tune in front of their audience for a half an hour? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean the most you got out of like the sort of alternative kind of indie culture was like, there was a pre-release version of a song and a pro and a, and a post-release version. Right. And that's how you could sort of date the show. Yeah. They weren't like living, breathing things that would evolve from yeah. concert to concert. I mean, Jane's addiction to an extent, but whole surfers, Jesus lizard, but there weren't that many alternative bands that were really pushing the envelope live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so and so I sort of I sort of challenged them. Right. And I was like, all right, both of you turn around. I'm just going to pull shows at random and um, I'm going to fast forward or rewind around. So you don't know like where I am in the show. And and you guys are just going to have to tell me when this show is from. And uh, it was just amazing. You know, it's like it's like watching. It's like when you think wine tasting is kind of fake and then you watch, you know, experience sommeliers talk about and you realize oh there's a methodology and yeah i learned about scotch so why wouldn't i be able to tell the difference between a 69 china cat and a 74 china cat Mm -hmm. right so and it was just and i I just remember that moment and and we went for like a good hour or so where i just kept saying like no you like there's some i was looking for like the trick right 
I thought like, okay, you're looking when I'm pulling the cassettes or you have them organized in a certain way. And to be able to, to like nail something down to within a year or two was, was really impressive. And that was exactly the moment where I was like, wow, there's, there's just this crazy world of inside knowledge here that's like, that like you could coexist alongside, right? There's this whole other culture and it's there the whole time and you don't know it's there until you kind of poke it. Yeah, I actually had a problem with some of that culture, the superficial trappings of the deadhead scene, like tie-dye and patchouli and hemp jewelry and all that. Like, in high school, these were the people that I absolutely did not want to associate with. Right. But I feel bad now because I missed all of this other interesting stuff, all this intersecting phenomenon, you know, that is going to be the basis for so much of what we talk about on Dead to Me. And of course, on a certain level, there is this aspect of dead fandom that's like collecting baseball cards or geeking out on sports stats, except you got this freaky psychedelic music to go with. Right, right. Like any sports analogy is actually a very good one. As you were talking, I was just kind of picturing the room where the scene I was just describing took place. And I was probably wearing Doc Martens when I was doing this. I Mm. had, you know, like half of my room was covered in like Faith No More living color and nine inch nails type posters yeah right there with you right there was no there was nothing on my side of the room that pointed to like a you know uh nascent lifelong uh deadhead but so this is like 95 did you actually get a chance to see them play before jerry died no crucially this is the fall of 95 my my freshman year in college that i uh realized um that i was kind of into this stuff that last tour was pretty rough like the rfk show I feel like at that show, someone got struck by lightning and maybe died. Yeah, that entire tour was sort of cursed. The roof fell in on a bunch of people at one show and the lightning strike and the band had death threats called into them. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of one show in particular where somebody called in a death threat to Jerry Garcia and they beefed up security, which they didn't like. They turned on the house lights for, I think, most of the show, which also they didn't like. But Jerry stood there in cheeky defiance and played the song Dire Wolf, which includes the line, don't murder me, please don't murder me, which he delivered with a little bit of a wink. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Um, So what did your cool kid friends, you know, the goth and alternative crowd, think about you getting into this weird freaky hippie band uh you know thankfully this was kind of before the age of social media right i mean i think like a lot of us like pretty much my first personal email account was the one they gave me in college right so you sort of had separation from your from your friends back home right so you sort of went away for three months and you came back and and uh and if you were into something different like that was just sort of who you were becoming right um it was off-putting to people that i came back with like probably you know three or four grateful dead shows i came back with like one or two fish tapes and well, Fisher, another story, like yeah. p- part of my cross to bear is that I spent 15 years in Burlington, Vermont, uh, and I had a great time in that town and made a lot of great friends, lifelong friends, and, you know, started off my various strange professional careers, um, you know, from stuff I got up to there. But it's also Fish Central, you know, that's oh, where they come from, and the University of Vermont really should have paid that band a finder's fee for the years of <laughs> 1993 to at least the millennium. And I was a lead guitar player. That was kind of my identity. So I felt like I had moved to this town that already had a gunslinger. And I didn't want any part of that, you know. 
it just made it hard for me to get into stuff like the Grateful Dead because I landed in the middle of contemporary jam rock central. But I always liked Jerry Garcia as a player mm-hmm. and as a vocalist and as a person. Uh, he just seemed special. The band played in Highgate, Vermont on their last two tours. And that was such a big deal that even some of my punk rock and hardcore friends went. Right. But I guess I was just a snobby jerk or something. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. In retrospect, I probably should have gone. But at the time, I mean, I was the kind of person who would have felt very awkward right. in displaying any outward affinity towards this band. You know, I remember an interview with um, with Stephen Malkmus, I think in Relics, because for like, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, Malkmus was, was cool to the jam people because Trey was into him. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were asking him about his time at UVA and the kinds of music he would go see. And he was talking about actually driving up to D.C. and being into the to the hardcore scene here a little bit. But um, and, I, and I guess the interviewer said, well, how about the dead? Did you ever go see them? And he was like, well, of course, you always like that's just a given. That was just sort of a fact of life. Huh. Um, That's really cool to hear. I mean, when when I found out later, like Greg Ginn from Black Flag, like has seen like 300 right. dead shows or something. I'm really looking forward to an episode that we have coming, which is basically about how the dead is punk as fuck. And they have a surprising number of fans in the punk community. But then there's the ethos, the organizing principle. Oh, completely. Which is essentially anarchy. Yeah, yeah, and that there's there was there was in fact a steadfast refusal on their part to like impose any kind of organization on their own scene, and their overall attitude is completely anti-authoritarian. That's just an example of some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Like this first episode, as my coming out party, I just thought it was interesting to hear from folks who might have come to the dead through different avenues. But later on, we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. I'm really interested in how the Grateful Dead organization had women in positions of power and influence, like audio engineer Betty Cantor and Mm -hmm. their lighting director Candace Brightman, or Eileen Law, who worked uh, in the front office and kind of ran the business, or Annette Flowers from their publishing company. And then there's Mountain Girl, Jerry's consort for a number of years, who was and is totally badass. You know, there's so many ways to look at this, and, and when I think about having the opportunity to do this podcast with my friends, we're not just doing this for deadheads, but also for the dead curious or even the dead averse. Right. I think especially for the dead averse. Yeah. So I imagine this to be a cross-cultural examination through the lens of the dead. It's a rich tapestry. I mean, you've mentioned the sort of this question of like the sexual politics of the dead. And, and, and there's no doubt that there's a lot about the band that is what we would call today very heteronormative. But there were also ways in which they. Yeah, I'm sure the crew culture. Right. Could be construed as problematic in contemporary terms. The other the other thing that that uh, that um, I know we're going to hit on that'll be really fascinating is this weird sort of like. Uh, individualistic libertarian strain that runs through the dead and, 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 and the ways in which they embody. Yeah, the politics of the dead are a strange and fascinating beast that we are definitely going to take a closer look at. Right, there's this great like collective um, spirit, but then there's also this like very strong kind of Western libertarian, uh, and some of that comes from John Perry Barlow, but some of it just comes from the guys sort of being, like you said, kind of anarchic in their, uh, in their temperament. Well, they were kind of cowboys, too. I mean, a lot of the folks in their orbit uh, on the crew were coming from rural Oregon. So these were real cowboy types. I mean, the band liked to shoot. Essentially, they were apolitical in terms of their engagement in the arena of politics, at least mm-hmm. for a while. But they also attracted 
a number of political figures who are dyed in the wool deadheads like Patrick Leahy or Al Franken, uh, even folks like Ann Coulter. Right. So we have the politics of the dead episode queued up for a little later on in the season. When we think about the libertarian value system and the Grateful Dead's impact on culture writ large, in a certain light, you can see the dead as being partially responsible for Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. A lot of those early freaks and heads ended up in positions of power and influence in the emerging technology industries in Northern California, especially. Absolutely. And then there's folks like Asley Stanley, who was not only their acid chemist and financier, but kicked off their whole audio research and development wing. And in so many ways, the Grateful Dead's explorations there kind of opened up the future for live sound reinforcement and audio technology across the board. Absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's one of my favorite sort of misconceptions about the dead is that they were somehow stuck in time when, in fact, they were, from a technological standpoint, so forward looking. So there's a lot of stuff at play here that I think folks can find interesting, even if they're not quite there yet in terms of the music. Um, but the music and the lyrics themselves are also interesting. On the music side, the early dead is a terrifying band. <laughs> and, you know, Halloween is coming up and we'll yeah. be talking about how the Grateful Dead connects to a universe of the creepy and bizarre. Jerry Garcia himself was a, an avowed horror fan, mm -hmm. uh, cinema and comics. And the bass player, Phil Lesh, has talked about how in the early days, the band was tearing at the fabric of space and time, opening up weird wormholes to parallel yeah. dimensions where Lovecraft's old gods dwell. I was, I was about to invoke Lovecraft's name. There's just a whole bunch of interesting stuff here that I think will be fun to talk about and explore. And I'm glad to do that with you because you got here first and so you've scoped out the terrain. Well, we, I mean, we get to explore it together, right? What would you say to somebody who, you know, thinks they don't like the Grateful Dead? Like, what would be your elevator pitch to get somebody to at least check them out? Well, I, I, you know, depending on where the person is coming from, I think, I, you know, I usually just start with um, the fact that there are so many just terrific songs. Um, and that contrary to the, their depiction in popular culture as this, as this sort of like lovey-dovey kind of hippie summer of love thing, there's actually, there's actually a fair amount of like murder and, um, and selfishness in their songs, right? And they sort of embody this great kind of... Yeah, I think of Robert Hunter, the lyricist, his songs as being Americana koans. The entire karmic experience is represented. It's, it's this great sort of like paradox of, what it, of, of America, right? And so the other way in which, in which the dead are sort of salient to me in, in my own biography is that, it, is that I got into them at about the time I realized that like whatever the idea of America was, it was going to be a part of, of me and, and, and my fabric. And so, well, you picked the right America. I think you picked the real America. <laughs> because the Grateful Dead, with all their rough edges, with those thorns in the rose, you know, they represent a more authentic America than I think a lot of the jingoism that we tend to hear. Well said. Well said. What do you think, gang? Is it time for a segment? 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 Hi there. My name is Kevin Hill, and I am the executive producer of Dead to Me. And each episode, we're going to be taking a look at a notable deadhead for a little segment we like to call Feed Your Head. 
We're kicking things off with a major figure in 20th century cultural anthropology, Joseph Campbell, probably best known for his globe-spanning study of mythologies, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Campbell is also a familiar pop culture enthusiast for being a huge inspiration to George Lucas back when he was coming up with the concepts for Star Wars. Perhaps less known is the fact that Campbell was also a deadhead. How did this renowned academic from the world of comparative religion end up in the Grateful Dead's orbit? Well, as legend has it, Bob Weir ran into an associate of Campbell's while jogging, and this resulted in Campbell attending a dead show in February of 1985. It was, by all accounts, a life-changing experience. According to dead crew member Steve Parrish, at one point in the show, Campbell turned to him and said, This is modern mythology, and you guys are the heroes of the new culture, this new world. Members of the Grateful Dead were already followers of Campbell's work, especially the mystically inclined percussionist Mickey Hart and bassist Phil Lesh, the avant-garde intellect in the band. In 1986, UC Berkeley hosted a symposium called Ritual and Rapture, from Dionysus to the Grateful Dead. Campbell was on the panel, and he wasted no time giving props to his favored band. This is more than music, he told the audience, and what it turns on is life energy. This is Dionysus talking through these kids. Campbell never made it to another dead show as he passed away the following year. Nevertheless, those close to him report that he often mentioned the band and cherished his experience at their concert. Do you know of an interesting or unusual deadhead we could talk about on Feed Your Head? Go ahead and drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com. That is deadtomepod.com. And maybe you'll hear your story on the air in a later episode. For our very first edition of Dead to Me, I was thinking about who might be great to talk to about our theme for this episode, which is missing the bus, or as I like to call it, late onset dead fandom. Or maybe finding a way to this band that's a little bit off the beaten path, or not the stereotypical idea that we have of deadheads. So my mind immediately turned to Susan Norton, artist, illustrator, graphic designer, R&B aficionado, and rock and roll goddess who has worked at some of the most prestigious venues in North America. Susan is a very insightful individual, and I'm just delighted that she's with us today to help us uncover how there's more to this band than just patchouli and parking lots. Susan, I've known you for a really long time, but I never would have pegged you as a deadhead. So when did this transformation occur and under what conditions? Wow, you know, in the... I Ching, it says the path leads a thoughtful man on a path of many windings. It's hard to admit that you're a hippie or that you <laughs> subscribe to some kind of scene like the dead that's in its way sort of very hermetic, you know, um, the the look and feel of the deadheads and how they were all such a tight community. As a creator, you, you also have this urge to want to like keep exploring and your mind out in all kinds of different areas. I liked the dead as background noise. A lot of my friends enjoyed it and would play the music. And I really appreciated their influences. I During high school, I listened to a lot of blues and roots music, a lot of Alan Lomax right. stuff. And a lot of that stuff colors the dead. But, it you know, I was also into like heavy music and like 
distorted guitar and you know jerry's so clean and it's kind of tinkles along and it has this you know sort of rhythm that comes into itself like a wave you know and it just kind of goes on and on and you know it was pleasant but i didn't pay attention to it um and then i went to a couple dead shows at the end of high school and seeing them live really did change the game you know beyond like listening to live recordings like and you know kind of observing the community from the outside actually going to a show sort of flipped a switch. Um, what year did you go to see the Grateful Dead? I saw them in 1994 and in 1995. Um, so right at the very, very end. And and, right. and that's kind of interesting on two levels. Uh, on, on one level, the very last tour, at least, was considered kind of to be tragic in some fairly epic proportions. It was tragic, though. That yeah. was part of what the appeal was. It became human. You know, like David Bowie, I, he was somebody who, he was so godlike and so fabulous. He was such a, a right. you know, I knew him from movies and he, he seemed like a glamorous movie star to me. And, you know, this kind of mystical creature. And, and again, you know, I kind of peripherally enjoyed his music, but I didn't relate to it. And then, you know, Black Star came out. And Interesting. And I, that's when I felt it. I was like, wow, this is a man. So there are different, clearly different paths to epiphany. With Black Star, you sort of realize Bowie apart from the artifice, but you're still dazzled by his shape-shifting abilities. Oh. But with The Grateful Dead, that must have been something entirely different because you here you're seeing a Jerry Garcia who's uh, maybe starting to become dissipated in ways that are affecting the performance. Did that add a poignancy to it? I mean, can you remember back then and as somebody who maybe had just heard the Grateful Dead as background music, like what was it that inspired this new understanding? Well, yeah, I mean, specifically like standing on the moon was enormous for me and, and hearing his voice crack as he sang the outro, I'd rather be with you, be with you, be with you. And, and like, yeah, it was this call home and the, the song is about a call home. It's about longing. The poetry in it is beautiful. Uh, but the, yeah. the, you know, the song is about missing being home and like standing on the moon. He's standing on stage. He's like revered as almost godlike by all these people. And he's got this perspective of watching the world and all of the crazy things that go on. But he, he just wants to go home. Having never attended an actual Grateful Dead show, I can still see how that could be revelatory. Did you feel that you were like, okay, now I'm really into the Grateful Dead after that? Or did you just kind of go back to omnivorous musical and cultural consumption? Oh, I I was definitely more omnivorous at that point and actually just bought my first piece of Grateful Dead vinyl, the Anthem of the Sun reissue that just came out. um, So what did that do to you when you listened to it in the here and now? Well, (laughs) that was great because I did listen to it the first time with a huge metalhead, you know. And just metal mania. And it's funny, you know, I put on the Grateful Dead and you got to be careful because not everybody likes them. So, you know, you just respectfully, you know, is is this all right with you? And he's like, you know, I have to, it took me a long time to admit, but I, I, I love the Grateful Dead, their technology with the speakers and the wall of sound. And just, I mean, they really did shred. And Anthem of the Sun is a shredding record. And you can see recordings of them playing in like smaller venues and they just like bust out and they just like let it 
fly. Um, it's a truly strange record. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I love in the song Alligator, which is a Pigpen song, um, you know, Pigpen being yeah. their sort of early mascot front man who died tragically, I think, what was it, like 1970 or something? Yeah, um, but dated he was Janis a, Joplin, too. Dated so. Janis Joplin. So he's a character, and, you know, we could talk about him for hours. But what happens in that recording is so funny because it goes from, like, one of Pigpen's blues rave-ups, and it tumbles into just sheer noise rock. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's as gnarly as, like, any Baltimore basement-dwelling, pedal-hoarding And, I mean, essentially, that, that's what the blues is always leading to anyway. That's the, yeah. the tension in traditional blues music is that it's not going to, to just fall apart. Yeah, it's not that. safe. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, even when it's performed by one human being, like, for example, John Lee Hooker and where he chooses to get back to the one is a is a very elastic thing. And Robert Johnson being the king of non-Euclidean guitar. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> and he's just, you know, he makes you feel like, come on in my kitchen. That song makes me feel so cold. And, it, yeah. and I've had to, like, explain to people, like, that that song is a lot about, you know, people being abandoned in that culture and having to join together for lack of anyone else. <laughs> right. And there might be a received wisdom here as part of the, the, the great Americana transfer to the Grateful Dead of so many interesting strains and musical traditions. And They like, really do have an aggregating kind of quality. To they them, do. And I think spooky ass blues is, is definitely part of that transfer, particularly in the early days. Did you find as you became like more acclimated to the idea of enjoying and appreciating this band, did you find that musically and lyrically there were a lot of on-ramps? Because that helped me out a lot. I was able to get past so many of the things that initially annoyed me by discovering how kind of diverse and rich the tapestry is. And it's like true American art. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I had a 4th of July party at my house last year and somebody was like, oh, but, you know, put on some music. And I'm like, well, we'll put on, you know, the Grateful Dead because that's the most American band. And that got vetoed. But <laughs> so we, so we listened to Motown and that was that. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a there's a suitable compromise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Dead has some R&B influences as well, which is my cup of tea for sure. I mean, sometimes it's pretty excruciating. Let's not just like blow smoke up this band's ass. Like, sure. I, I, I think it's like <laughs> it's really hard for me to deal with the 1969 Bob Weir dancing in the streets. Uh, and then they turn it into a disco <laughs> funk rave up with Donna in like 77 or so. And it's uh, between those two extremes. I'm sure there is something resembling sanity. Yeah. Well, you know, cocaine is a hell of a drug, as they say. It sure so. is. I mean, we had to listen to that edge from all of the bands in the 70s, really. And yeah. I'm just like, are, are you are you sure you, you want to go down this path? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what they did, they did well. And they, they always tossed it out there. You know, I, I heard a quote from William Burroughs say about Gregory Corso is that the way that he wrote poems is that he just like, he just threw them out there and let them land. And sometimes it was brilliant. And sometimes yeah. it was like, what? <laughs> So I, and that might the be a bra the bravery it takes to do that is pretty astounding because one of the things that I had to get over, particularly as a person who plays music, 
is that, you know, you have to really relax into the moment. You have to be able to free yourself up of any of the sort of mundane concerns that would limit your expression. Sure. And, And, you know, they did have creative control as well, though, because they were essentially their own business. They were that's um, of quite a phenomenon. I mean, they're being your own record label, trying to put together a, a motion picture that took forever to make. And, you know, they had a lot of harebrained ideas and maybe they were flawed in execution. But sure. the ones that they managed to actually manifest in the real world ended up being templates for the future. Yeah. And I think that some of them have been kind of hijacked um, by certain pockets of the music industry of just, you know, the form and not the content um, like what what would be a good example of that um you know some of these like really big overblown kind of outdoor festivals for example um that kind of like sell this you know hippie love lifestyle where we're all in a community and we're all doing good by one another i think that like the live music scene came back up because people were like i want to interact with other human beings you know sure and it's um, something that they can't get so readily uh the overall experience is unique yeah and it just kind of it felt really like a money grab in a lot of cases and you, you look at something like the fire festival fiasco that was you know <laughs> right. and and that wasn't like a hippie thing that was that was a, a luxury event right i don't know i saw those sandwiches yeah, we'll just throw money on an island and it'll all work out. I think the Grateful Dead, like, you know, they did have they did throw out ideas and they did have harebrained schemes, but not insignificantly, they had a bunch of women running their business and they did make money and they set up the Monterey Pop Festival and all these record labels descended on the San Francisco scene and just snapped up all these artists and, and gave them record deals. Right. And there was all this hype and... Janice got pulled out of that. You know, Hendrix made his huge U.S. debut. Otis Redding came to light for the general population. But Dead wouldn't allow themselves to be in the in the released uh, film. They were disgusted by it because they didn't pay the artists. What ended up happening is a lot of those guys just stole amps from backstage and like. And then, you know, I mean, how well did those artists get treated? You know, I mean, the three artists I just mentioned, they were all dead within four years, you know? You're coming out of the 1950s where it was really just like throw them in a bus with no heat and then drive them to the Midwest and put them in VFW halls or fairgrounds and you play for 45 minutes and then, you know, it's back on the bus with you. But by the 60s, the idea of what the musicians bring to the table was rapidly evolving. And you have a band like the Grateful Dead that took different stances at different times, but were always internally consistent, which doesn't mean they didn't do iffy things. But there's some kind of guiding principle within the Grateful Dead that carried them across three decades. Yeah, I think a a big part of that was yanking out the idol component, the rock star as as idol. And then Phil Lesh in those socks is not, you know... Bobby in those jorts. (laughs) And I think I personally met professional musicians, certainly female musicians resent this, but like sexualizing and idolizing musicians as a part of the marketing ploy when, you know, people just want to tour comfortably and play music and have control over what they're recording. And a big part of the live music market now is selling experiences, VIP experiences where you meet the artists. And I don't know if that performer audience separation can ever really be completely removed, but I think the, the Grateful Dead's aesthetic definitely punched a big hole in it. 
Yeah, they also seem to be rooted in the pursuit of the one thing, which was, are we going to get our kicks together through music? And that seemed to be really sustaining for them in a way that, you know, maybe you don't get the sense is true for the Rolling Stones. Like, I don't know what dark magic keeps them going, but I do know that maybe it doesn't have as much to do with their communal love of music as I would say would have been true for the Grateful Dead while Garcia was alive. And again, a lot of that was kind of flowing through him, right? Like they they were there because of him, and I think they were sustained by his ongoing interest in music. That The curiosity is paramount. You know, when somebody starts losing the curiosity, that's what you can, you can tell. You can tell when you're listening right. to a band and the curiosity is, has gone. And, you know, a lot of that can come from just this exhaustion of marketing and touring and just getting yanked around by a system. So it's pretty clear that there are these cultural and musical and maybe spiritual aspects of this band that make them strangely compelling. And like you said at the top of our conversation, represent many paths to understanding and appreciation. But one of the things I'm most interested in and why I was excited to have a conversation with you is that you're an accomplished artist. We had these years when we were younger artists, but now there's obviously a maturation in how we relate to our expression. And I have found personally that one of the more exciting aspects of appreciating the Grateful Dead was that it allowed me to open up some channels in myself creatively that had been maybe blocked or uh, disused. And I'm wondering if maybe your experience is completely different, but has this band, what they represent, their approach, their oeuvre, has it inspired a similar evolution in your creative situation? When you're seeing somebody like Jerry, who's... It, definitely pointed to his North Star. That's something that can kind of tell you, hey, you know, there are structures that will hold what I have to create. It kind of seemed like they were just speaking their own truth the whole time. You know, whether or not that's been interesting to me, depending on, you know, what form it takes, you know. Yeah, there were so many barriers to me developing any sort of appreciation for this band. I mean, this podcast probably represents some form of therapy for me to come to terms with the deadhead that dwells within you know and i i have enjoyed some psychedelic music over the years but like the last 10 years in particular i've been really into it you know getting a lot of freaky jazz and digging deep into the hendrix catalog you know there's been a lot of great new psych bands that are coming out Um, so many good ones and and they all seem to come from australia yeah (laughs) makes me want to go there but um, walk about yeah (laughs) yeah i mean and and then to hear, you know, this anthem of the sun and just to finally kind of like recognize that loudness, that beast, you know, is is really fascinating. And then with all of that, I've been more appreciative of psychedelic art. Talk about that for a minute, because there's a lot of symbolic potency in the Grateful Dead iconography. You know, you have the memento mori that is the skull. And then there's the rose, which of course has thorns, but also represents the ephemeral nature of things. It's beautiful, but it also grows in shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the band's name itself, you know, coming from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is, you know, you must tread lightly and respectfully to even crack that book open, you know. And then, of course, that cosmology lends itself to 
endless study and blues for Allah was always my favorite album cover. I'm assuming that a lot of folks who would be listening to this podcast would be dead fans, but we also made it to be interesting to people who aren't as familiar with the dead. So to briefly describe this cover, uh, maybe we'll put it on the site too. It's a skeleton in a cloak sitting erect over, you know, some type of mystical looking rock in front of an archway. And doesn't it, does it look out into a sort of night sky? Like Yeah, sort of... it's kind of, you know, there's the, the, cr- the crescent. He's sitting in the crescent and it has uh-huh. a kind of Art Nouveau uh, design like deco dnd the muted greens and the crimson red and he's got a violin in, in his hand and he's you know the bow is posed to strike it and sunglass mirrored sunglasses uh, mirrored sunglasses wiry of gray hair and um you know kind of kind of smirking and kind of chin up sort of a little a little, a little arrogant like i i know something you know um but yeah, very mystic like, secret poised and you know it's um it's a lot like uh, the magician card or the high priestess card in the Rider Waite deck. But yeah, you know, uh, the dead, you know, Stanley Mouse. So they had like this kind of back and forth between this like really like goofy, uh, playful sort of style with Stanley Mouse's stuff. And then you know, the mystical uh, iconography like you're talking about with skeletons. And, and also, you know, I mean, I wonder like, why is this Californian band talking about Allah? You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's far out. They went to the pyramids and right before they hit their first notes, they got surrounded with Bedouins who had sort of gathered on the outskirts of the area that they were playing in front of the Great Pyramid at Giza. And they were about to play and they were hearing these drums and the Bedouins had sort of started playing around them before they started their rock show. And those rhythms of Northern Africa, it's the Bo Diddley beat. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's eternal. <laughs> it is. And, and um, you know, thinking about the way that American music is this conglomerate of different cultural music. And, and I would strongly recommend Blues People by Leroy Jones um, that talks about from 400 years on of the black music experience in the United States up until about bebop is when he actually wrote the book but it really talks about how things combine together you know um the different instruments banjo um playing the spoons harmonicas balafone and then of course like these rhythms and then there's also the great movie that came out recently um rumble the indians who rock the world who talk about the native american influence in music so there's always something new to dig out when you're talking about american music and you know the grateful dead just sort of smashed it together and for some reason, Garcia seems to come by it honestly, like his dad was a big band leader. His dad died when he was pretty young. I think he was like five or six or something horrible like that. But his love of American folk traditions and idioms was truly like really genuine, as was his love for just the rawest R&B that he was lucky enough to be in an environment to pick up on the radio back when this stuff was known as like race records and you know polite white families were not (laughs) supposed to listen to it and he was soaking that up and then also pursuing simultaneously an investigation a deep deep investigation of american folk traditions so it's unsurprising that the chassis of rock and roll and and the sort of spare parts of american folk traditions got fused together in this creepy jalopy what was missing i think was the flux capacitor called LSD. (laughs) (laughs) I think of the Grateful Dead, it's like uh, Back to the Future 3 when when Doc shows up in the the steam train, you know, but it's a steam train that can still blow through dimensions and traverse time, so... (laughs) 
if if you compare it to a jalopy, you know, they were just kind of loading everything into the car that that they liked, and That's right. some of the stuff would fall off. <laughs> or it's like that scene in The Jerk where Steve Martin is like, you know, and he needs his thermos. You got to take that with. Where do you see like the band actually leading the charge in terms of creativity? Because there's a lot of copycat bands and I don't really give a crap about that at all. I mean, I look at them sometimes for fun and there's this band called Grateful Shred out of L.A. They can't be like more than 25. Right. And they are so good. They don't copy it. They just like embody it. it. But they also can do like Everly Brothers shit and like, you know, so they're just like weird kids well um, see that's i think that's part of it is that they're um th- that they are curious about other influences and are right and so where do you that's what i'm that's what i'm wondering like where do you think it's going like sometimes I'll, I'll be on youtube and i'll see like generationally it's like post-millennial now right so like there's post-millennial uh kids like a lot of young women you know singing in that interesting late gilded age warble that they, they seem to have picked up, you know, it's some, the cross between like high and lonesome and flapper or yeah. something, um, you know, the, the post-millennial yodel, I guess, <laughs> but there, <laughs> and it's great. I love it. Like it's, I, I'm not, this is not a condemnation at all. I'm like actually really impressed that a young person would uh, go on YouTube and play Direwolf or, you know, Mississippi half-step toodaloo <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so that's kind of like an observation that I've had that, okay, this thing is continuing in a way that has now thankfully transcended the hermetic jam band universe, which I, you know, I've grown to sort of appreciate on its own merits, uh, but into this other thing. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you see any evidence or have any observations along those lines. Definitely, you know, in the internet era, we're talking a lot about aggregating information right so i think that what you're talking about with singers you know doing this kind of like old-timey styles you know they're trying to renovate something that's just a really like simple straightforward format in that aspect it's the joy of actually singing and performing that's coming through you know in the 50s like jazz standards were one of the most popular forms of music and then you've got like harry belafonte who is you know singing folk music is it weird to you that this druggy band that came out of the acid culture and the beat scene and went freak cowboy, that they'd have standards? You know, Jimmy Page said at one point that rock and roll is folk music, you know, and the Grateful Dead is becoming something that people are digging for. And I've been working in a record store for a couple of weeks here and they have completely uh, vintage catalog. And every day I have a teenager asking for the Grateful Dead. You know, when you think about it generationally, that would be like us, you know, when we were in our early 20s going to the store and asking for an Andrews Sisters record, (laughs) which, Uh, you know, I might have done, but yeah, I was I was pretty weird. So so but there's obviously a lot of weird kids if they're into this freak music from the 60s and 70s and 80s and, you know, part of the 90s. Do you notice that the kids are looking for anything in particular or are they just hungry for like Grateful Dead on wax, man? Yeah, I, I think it's the latter, you know, and um, I think it's something that, you know, how do I even start dipping into the Grateful Dead? As I alluded before, it's kind of like a, a tarot deck, you know, and I approach just even my record collection as an act of divination. I would like to know, uh, before we wrap up, what are you doing in your creative universe right now that listeners might want to know about? Well, I am starting a number of social media channels, including a Patreon page. 
the big struggle for me has been aggregating all of my work because I do a number of different things. So I decided to kind of not curate it <laughs> and to uh, to offer a subscription so that you can get any number of these things sent to you because I do a number of different work. I've been wanting to kind of anchor it by uh, surrounding it with my spiritual practice, which is generally pagan, maybe Taoist, although I frequently forget that I'm a Taoist, so I think I'm doing all right. I um, think that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but just kind of allow people to kind of like lightly enter into some kind of conversations about divinatory arts, um, pagan discussions, and then, you know, give people goodies like comics and drawings and essays and things of that nature. So I want it to be a place where people can find comfort and conviviality and some joy and some entertainment. It's called an electricity ship, and it comes from my nephew drew me a picture for my birthday. He was fascinated by lightning that struck in his town and burned down a house and so he was drawing pictures of lightning and electricity throughout the year and he sent me a drawing and my sister labeled it this is an electricity ship and I said I'm an electricity ship I'm <laughs> I'm a spirit in a body moving th through this world and endlessly fascinated and uh, curious well I think that that's probably the best metaphor that we can come up with for all of the stuff that we've talked about here and people can find this at patreon.com and electricity ship i just want to say thank you so much you came in with this request and no lie the day before i had been writing my friend a letter about my profound experience seeing jerry perform standing on the moon isn't yeah. that something? The synchronicities <laughs> abound. It is all interconnected. This kind of conversation reflects that interconnectivity on some level. Absolutely. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production recorded in Washington, D.C. with your host, Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer, Kevin Hill. See you next time. Yeah.